What's something irrational you did today? Hold that thought. Here's what people said when we asked around. I spent more money on a flight because I had credit card points that I could use, even though I could have used them on anything, but I just bought a more expensive flight. The most irrational thing I did today was started a fight over nothing with my husband. I packed my lunch and I worked really hard to pack it and forced myself to bring it this morning, and then I bought lunch anyway. Despite our efforts to make every decision right or to go through a day without making mistakes, it's pretty much impossible to actually do that. You buy a shirt you don't need just because it's on sale. Or you buy a $4, well, in New York, $5 coffee, even when there's cheaper, equally good coffee right across the street. On this episode of The Bid, we speak to an expert on irrationality, Dan Ariely. Dan's a renowned behavioral economist and a professor at Duke University. There, he co-founded Common Sense Lab, a nonprofit focused on increasing financial well-being for low- to moderate-income people in the United States. BlackRock is working with Common Sense Lab to help people build emergency savings. Dan has published six books, he's given six TED Talks, and he's co-founded five startups. In fact, he ends his emails with a signature sign-off, Irrationally Yours. Today, we'll talk about just that. What makes this irrational, particularly when it comes to money? And how behavioral economics can help us tackle big issues like the short-term savings crisis and the retirement crisis. I'm your host, Mary Catherine Later. We hope you enjoy. Dan, thank you so much for joining us today. It is my pleasure. So let's start by explaining perhaps an often used term that may not be totally well understood by all those who throw it around. What exactly is behavioral economics? <laughs> yes, it's actually, I think, not exactly understood even by the people who practice it. <laughs> so behavioral economics is really easy to understand in contrast to standard economics. So what is standard economics? In standard economics, we assume that people are rational that people take all the information into account, that people can think into the future, they don't have emotions, and so on and so on. And because of that, we think people always make the right decision. In behavioral economics, we say, not so fast. Let's not make assumptions about people. Let's just put people in different situations and see how they behave. So the first difference is that social science and behavioral economics are experimental in nature rather than based on assumptions. And when you get people to behave, you see that they're often irrational. And now comes a really interesting point is if you believe that people are rational, you will build the world in a certain way. You would convince people to stop smoking or stop texting while driving in one way. But if you believe that people are irrational in systematic and predictable ways, then you would go about improving the world in different ways, right? You wouldn't necessarily say to people, hey, did you know... Texting and driving is dangerous, stop immediately. You would do other things. So the difference is about the assumptions, how we learn about people, and what are the implications for improving society. So is there a magic answer about what exactly makes us irrational and how those solutions designed for irrational humans are different? Or is it different depending on the kind of choice you're solving for? Yes. There's one way to be rational, and there are many ways to be irrational. (laughs) So it's not so simple. It's not so simple, and it depends on the level of granularity that you want to talk about. So if you're trying to think about the most general case, you could think about evolution. 
And you could say, you know, our brain was developed to deal with an evolutionary environment that is very unlike the environment we're in right now. Just think about the differences between running in the savannah and being afraid from a tiger to being afraid that your stock portfolio is going up or down. And then if you get to more specific levels and you say, but is there one reason? The answer is no. Hmm. For example, one reason is emotions, right? Emotions get us to be derailed from our long-term best interest many times. We have things that have to do with our difficulty in computing things, difficulty in holding multiple hypotheses in mind, difficulty of think many steps ahead. So there are many, many things that we do wrongly on this specific level, but they all stem from this fact that we're basically utilizing brain mechanism, think about them as tools, in a way that they were not designed for. Hmm. We talk a lot on this podcast about the choices people make around money, whether they're professional investors or individuals. You started Common Sense Lab, essentially a research organization to help focus on better decision-making around money. What is specific to irrationality when it comes to how people engage with money? Yeah. Can I ask you, if you thought about your biggest money mistake, what was it? It's not investing enough soon enough. It's waiting too long to try to make the perfect decision. Yeah. So one is procrastination, just delaying. Right. And that actually has a few causes to procrastination. And then the second thing is not sacrificing enough now for the future. Yeah. Right. Which is you say, you know, I see a new bicycle now. I really feel like it. It's really wonderful. If I delayed for the future, you know, how exciting is that? Not very exciting. So if you think about the process of decumulating wealth and making the rational decision, it's really, really very tough. You need to know how long you're likely to live and what will you need at retirement. If I told you you were going to die at age 50, life is much simpler from computing how much you need to save. Right. But if you don't know if you live to 60 or 100, now things are very difficult. So the thing about money is both that it's a wonderful, wonderful invention. It's at the level of the wheel in terms of its contribution to society. It's unbelievable what this abstract notion is doing to us as a society mm -hmm. in a good way. At the same time, really hard to think about it. And I'll give you one example. We went to a Toyota dealership a few years ago. And these were people who went to meet the dealer. They knew what the price of the car was and they had to decide yes or no. And we stopped them and we say, look, if you're going to go ahead and buy this car, what would you not be able to do? What is it coming instead of? What is the opportunity cost? And people had no answer. Why? Because they never thought about it. So we pushed them and we pushed them. And then the most common answer we got was, if I go ahead and buy a Toyota, I can't buy a Honda, which, <laughs> which of course, is not the answer we were looking for. Right. The answer we were looking for is this is going to be instead of three weeks vacation for the right. next three years and 700 lattes and 16 books and so on. It turns out that the most beautiful thing about money, which is that we can buy lots and lots of things with it, is also what makes it really hard to think about. Hmm. The abstract notion. So if I gave you now $3, what exactly did I give you? Right? How do you exactly do you think about it? Do you think about the marginal value of $3? No. By the way, as a simple representation, we find that we have a much easier time getting people to do something for a cappuccino than for $3. That's fascinating. Wait, they didn't trust you when you offered them $3? They didn't understand the value is different to everybody? 
it's the representation, mm. right? Imagine I stopped, I was on a street corner, I say, hey, excuse me, would you fill a survey for $3? What exactly is this $3 giving you? Now, it could give you a cappuccino, but it could give you lots of other things. Right. But at that moment, you're not thinking about a cappuccino or even something better. But when I say, would you fill a survey for 10 minutes for a cappuccino? Now, all of a sudden, you represent the value of what you're getting. And that's part of the challenge with money is we have a hard time representing the value of money. And because of that, we make lots of mistakes in how we spend. So what are some practical real-world examples of trying to help people make better decisions about money and particularly decisions in the moment that have the kind of future implications you're talking about? So I'll tell you about some tricks we found in the lab. And there's a digital wallet called Capital that implemented it. You know, there's some things that are bills that are just coming out. But the things we have control over is discretionary spending. Restaurants, cabs, coffee, beer, supermarkets. Right. Now, if you give people a monthly budget for these things, we find that people run out very quickly. Let's say your monthly budget is $2,000. You look at it at the beginning of the month. You say, look at me. I'm so rich. I have $2,000. And two weeks later, you're at zero. So we found out that a month is too long of a time frame to plan. So we pushed it for a week. And then we found out that a week that starts on Friday is very different than a week that starts on Monday. Hmm. If the week starts on Friday and I give you $500 in this spending account, people spend way too much on the weekend. If I put it up on Monday, people savor for the weekend. Hmm. So this company called Capital took this idea seriously and they give people a prepaid debit card, and they load up the amount of money that you need for the week every Monday. And they show you how much money do you have from your plan. So that's one trick, right? And of course, you could do it yourself. You don't have to do it with somebody else. But the idea is a month is too long. Get it to be weekly. Start the week on Monday. Picking the number, the right number, is a whole other question, I'm sure. Yeah, that's right. It's not easy to pick a number. And the, a dangerous thing to do is to see what have I been spending so far and just using that number because that's a recipe for repeating past behavior. What you really want to figure out is what kind of joy am I getting? And that's another study we did was we asked people to look at their spending. And for each spending event, we asked them to what extent they were happy with this and to what extent they regret it. You know, when we buy things, it's always with an eye to the future. How would I feel if I got this? How would I feel if I did this? We don't very often go back and reflect on what we've done and say, was this a good decision or a bad decision? And when we get people to do that, there's lots of categories that people say, I did spend way too much money on that. By the way, the leading category that people regret is eating out. Hmm. And it's not because eating out is a bad idea. It's because they eat out, they eat too much, they drink too much, and they regret all of those the next day. <laughs> so trick number one is weekly budget starts on Monday. Trick number two is from time to time, think about what makes you happy. And part of the challenge in the world is that everybody wants something from us, right? Every app, every coffee shop, everybody wants our time, money, or attention right now. And because they designed the environment, they have a really easy time derailing us from our goal. So let's say you go to the supermarket and you have a goal of what you want to get. The supermarket also has a goal. Right. It's just not the same as yours. Right. And guess what? 
they decide what's going to wait for you by the cash register, right? And they decide to put things in there that would ignite your emotions and get you curious and make it likely that you will buy it. They don't put the tomatoes and cucumbers there. So another important thing is to try to kind of remember what we're working towards, what we really want, and not be swayed as much by the environment. And that's also why having a discretionary spending is good. For example, I'll give you my own example. I think I need to change my car in three years. And every time I get a salary, there's a fixed amount of money that goes to a separate account for my future car. And I don't trust myself that if it's in my checking account, I could just say, oh, here is my balance minus something. I basically want to see the balance actually reflecting more correctly what I have. And for the goals I want, I try to move the money to those goals automatically so that it accumulates and I don't have to worry about it. Is this what you call choice architecture? All of this is part of choice architecture, absolutely. So choice architecture is the idea that the design of the environment really matters. You design the environment one way, you'll behave one way. If you put the fruits and vegetables in your refrigerator in the bottom opaque drawer, you will not get to it very often, and by the time you do, they'll rot. If you put them at eye level, you'll eat more fruits and vegetables, mm -hmm. right? If you set up things to move money automatically to some categories, you'll have money for those categories. If it doesn't, you'll find ways to spend it on other things. So that how does this apply in the context of professional investors? So you could argue the incentive is pretty clear. A professional investor, a portfolio manager has to make money to earn a return. Whereas maybe in our personal lives, as you've been talking about, sometimes it's hard for us to be really honest about our goals or to size them appropriately. What have you learned about choice architecture or controlling for the irrationality in investing in public markets, for example? Yeah, so this belief that the moment we become professional, we become somehow better is really interesting. <laughs> so you could say, maybe if it's not your money, you don't care so much. So you're not as emotionally invested. Mm -hmm. uh, but of course, we pay financial advisors proportional to how much money they make. So it is their money. Right. You could say maybe getting a lot of training is helpful, like professional chess players, right? They're really good. They play, they play, they play, and they're really good at that. But to develop that, you'll need lots of repetition, and you'll need accurate feedback. And the stock market, of course, doesn't give it to you. Mm -hmm. So there are cases where professional can be distant. For example, lots of patients go to their doctor and say, doctor, you're recommending this procedure. What would you do? Or if it was your son or daughter or mother, what would you do? And Jerry Groupman, in one of his books, he's a very good physician, he analyzed many situations and said that it's really good for doctors not to care about their patients. That sounds terrible. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But he said that when they care about their patients, they're biased in their opinion. And when they don't care, they're more able to give them objective, clean information. So there are cases where professionals are more objective. I'm not sure stock market is like that. And there are cases where people can get lots of experience by repetition and by doing things differently and seeing how things work. And they also become professionals. Again, I don't think that in the stock market it is the case. So I actually don't view a lot of professional investors as investors in that. 
But what I think they can be good at is helping people understand the psychology of money. You get out of college, you get your first job, you have a tendency to want to get an apartment and a new sofa and a TV and maybe a car and do all these things. A good financial advisor would say, slow down, mm-hmm. right? It's more of the, let me help you figure out how to run your life with this amount of money. So those kinds of trade-offs, visualizing those, understanding those, studying them is part of what you do at Common Sense Lab. Why did you start Common Sense Lab and why focus on money and particularly lower or middle-income Americans? So first of all, why focus on money? So I think about all the cases in the world where we as human beings don't live up to our potential. Hmm. So I think we waste our time We waste our money, we waste our health, we don't create the right conditions for motivation in the workplace, we waste the environment, and we hate. I mean, that's maybe those are the the big ones. No big problems, yeah. And I picked a few years to focus on money because I think that the transformation of the cell phone and digital currency gives us tremendous opportunities to do that. So, you know, as long as we had physical money, there was not much that we could do with it, not much that we could change in how people think and represent it. But now that it's digital and we have the phone walking around the world with us, it means we can have a decision aid in real time helping us do things better. And there's one way to go, which is Apple Pay, which is to say, let's make it easy to spend money. Mm -hmm. Let's make it frictionless. Let's make it such that people don't think about spending money, that they tap or swipe or touch, and then they get very surprised at the end of the month. Or you could say, let's create a different type of technology that get people to think a little bit deeper, and maybe it will be a bit more painful, but make sure that it's more likely that people would spend according to their long-term goals and in a way that is actually good for them. So that was the first reason for going into the domain of money. And we focus on low income because the mistakes there are incredibly devastating. Imagine a low-income person that lives hand-to-mouth, and they have no extra. In one month, something bad happens. They have no extra. What do they do? They borrow. In the current environment, they borrow at a very, very high percent interest rate. And let's say that three months later, that problem they had is fixed. Maybe somebody was sick, the roof was leaking, something like that. Now they are three months behind plus interest. Right. Right? And that spirals down. So, you know, for people, you know, I'm a university professor, I have a salary. If there's a negative income shock, I'm perfectly able to handle it. But if you don't, that creates tremendous turmoil. And just to kind of give you some statistics, what percentage of Americans do you think don't have enough money to be able to pay an unexpected bill of $500? I'll say 60. It's a little bit less than 50, but it's a lot, right? I mean, when you think about that statistic, you think about a third world country. You don't think about the U.S. Right. Totally. Imagine you have 100% of wealth and you broke Americans into five compartments. The poorest 20%, the next 20%, the 20% in the middle, the richest and the absolute richest. And you ask the question from this 100% of wealth, how much does each of those buckets of 20% hold? And of course, we know that the top 20% own a lot of the wealth, but what people often don't know is how little the bottom people have. So from a total of 100%, the bottom 40% of Americans have about 0.3% of the wealth. Wow. 
right? Basically nothing. And we focus on inequality at the top side, but the real terrible thing is at the bottom. So if I could get somebody in the middle range of the distribution to save another thousand dollars, that's lovely. But if I can get somebody at the bottom end of the distribution to save $500, I could protect them from some serious downsides. And you can ask, can they save? And the answer is yes. And we've shown it in slums in Africa when we can get people who live on $10 a week Mm. to save some money for a rainy day. And we've shown that if you just open an account for people and you call it a saving account for their kids and you put a tiny amount of money in it, people start thinking of their kids differently. Hmm. All of a sudden, the parents said, oh, my goodness, this kid is two years old, but, you know, has a college savings account. And they start reading to them more and all kinds of things happen. So money is not just a way to accumulate wealth. It's also a way for people to think about themselves. And in some of the research, it's shown that let's imagine somebody who owes $10,000 on a credit card debt. And you could say, what should I do first? Should I get them to pay it first or to build a little savings account? And the rational answer is get them to put as much as possible toward the debt because they pay higher interest rate on that than they make from their savings account. Right. But it turns out that having some money in a savings account gives people a lot of hope and confidence and optimism. And that by itself is an important thing to do. Hmm. Here's another statistic. What do you think is the turnover rate in places like Pizza Hut, McDonald's, Burger King? How often do people change their jobs? I would say every eight months, maybe the turnover of the attrition is like 30 or so percent. The turnover rate is 130 percent. Whoa. So basically what you said, right, people change more than once a year. Right. And when people change jobs, it's not that there's another job waiting for them. Why do they leave? You know what? It's a big mystery, but somebody could get a situation where they can't make it. Their car broke down Hmm. and then they feel embarrassed to show up again. It could be that somebody got a shift that didn't work well for them. So lots of things happen, and there's lots of pain in the lower income everywhere in the world. But in the U.S., we should be better. Totally, totally. And so you mentioned, you sort of hinted at the connection we make between money and work. And you're doing more research these days on what drives people, what motivates people in the workplace. So what have you learned about the extent to which money motivates people to show up for work, whether they're working at a pizza hut and they need to show up that one day after they missed a shift or in a completely different context? I have data about hundreds of companies, big companies in the U.S. stock market, and I have data about all kinds of ways in how people treat their employees. And I can look at this data and I can say, if companies treat their employees well, do the companies also do better in the stock market? And it turns out that Absolute salary doesn't matter that much. Relative salary matters a lot. Hmm. So it's much more about the sense of fairness. Relative to people who do similar work to us or to the people in our communities? So it's relative to the people at your job who are doing similar work, Hmm. right? That's the most salient one. And one way to think about it is that your absolute level of salary doesn't come into your mind very often. But when you see injustice in your company, that really bothers you. Another thing that seems to matter a lot is the sense of autonomy. If you think about work, a lot of things about work are the things that allow us to prosper, where you don't think you're like a pawn and somebody tells you what to do and you're just executing. Mm -hmm. But you feel a sense of connection and meaning and so on. And those things really matter. And we find in this 
large data sets that companies who are better at this, giving their employees a sense of meaning and autonomy, also do better in the stock market. And so then if money is part of it, autonomy is a big part of it as well, then what creates that sense of meaning in a productive workplace? Like, How can companies do a better job and give their employees that sense of meaning and autonomy? So lots of ways. I think the first thing to do is to realize in how many ways we are killing autonomy. And uh, basically, that's what bureaucracy does. Think about what bureaucracy is. Bureaucracy is basically the company saying to the employee, we don't trust you, right? And it could be, we don't trust you that when you go to dinner, you're doing the right thing. So we want to see the receipt and we want an essay about who you met and we want a recording of you know, all the things. So one thing we need to start doing is to realize the cost of bureaucracy, the cost of lack of trust to employees. And then the second thing about giving autonomy is that we need to understand that while giving autonomy, there are pluses and negatives, just that the plus outweighs the negative. I'll give you an example. If I have a new person in my research lab comes in, the easiest thing for me to do is to meet them on the first day and say, here's the project you're on, go. And we'll help you do it, of course, but this is what you're assigned to. A much more difficult position is to say, Tell me a little bit about you mm-hmm. and help me understand what you're curious about, what interesting is for you, what your career goals are, what you want to learn in the few years that you're going to be here, and then tailor something to them and say, you know, why don't you go and think about these three projects and see which one fits you better. Now, if you think about this, it's something that loses efficiency. I just wasted a meeting with somebody. I learned something about their parents and their hobbies and so on. I gave them a task for the next week. They're not going to execute. They're just going to think about what fits them better. And you could say this is a very inefficient use of time. But if you think about people not as robots, think about what will be the sense of meaning and connection and commitment to the project for somebody in my first story versus the second story. Mm -hmm. Very, very different. Totally. We need to understand that if we aim for efficiency and everything is about efficiency, we're also going to take away this sense of connection, belonging, autonomy. And these things need investments of time and resources. They just pay very well. And do you see companies trying to do that at scale and prioritizing it? And how does it end up paying off for the company to make that initial investment in understanding what gives their employees a sense of meaning, even at an individual level? So from the data set I told you about hundreds of companies, I can tell you that the companies who are doing well on employee motivation in my data do about 12% over the S&P on average. So companies who are good at this in my data set have a 12% return a year on their stock value. And how do you know if they're good at it? In my research, I've measured about 80 different dimensions of employee well-being, satisfaction, all kinds of things. Some of them, as I told you, don't seem to matter, like absolute salary. Some of them really matter. And I can take the ones that matter and I can compute how much better do companies that treat their employees well do compared to companies who don't treat their employees well or compared to the average company. It's a very large study. (laughs) took me a really long time. But I think it is starting to show that the returns are substantial. So purpose really matters then. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Here's the thing. Think about 
the minimum you need to do not to lose your job <laughs> and the maximum you could do if you're really excited. It's a really big difference. <laughs> this is called goodwill, right? How much goodwill do you have? Yeah. And as we move to the knowledge economy, goodwill is bigger and bigger. Because if you had a job like organizing the chairs around the table or something, somebody can see and measure it. When your work is you know, between your ears, it's happening in your brain, very hard to supervise, very hard to contract on it. Mm -hmm. So now it's just a question of how hard do you want to work, right? You could sit at your desk and you know, ponder life. You could work really hard. You could think, you can read, you could do lots of things. It's up to you to decide what your motivation is. And the question is, what gets people to be motivated? And meaning, purpose, a sense of connection, teamwork, all of those things really, really matter. Well, that's an inspiring and also challenging note for us to end on. Let me end with a rapid-fire round where I'm going to ask you a couple quick questions that you can answer in one sentence or less. Ready? Okay. So what motivates you? Reducing misery. That's pretty powerful, and it sounds like you're doing that in spades. What's the hardest decision that you've ever had to make? It was a medical decision. I'll give you more than one sentence, but I was badly burned. Over 70% of my body was burned. Mm. Many years ago, I was in hospital for many years, and there was a real question about amputating my arm or not. The doctors all recommended it for all kinds of reasons. I decided against it. My hand is not very functional, and it's quite painful. Not sure it was a good decision, but it was a very, very tough decision. That sounds extremely challenging. And what was the easiest? What was the easiest decision? Okay. I turned 52 years ago, and I decided to celebrate with my best friend. We're friends from seventh grade. Wow. And we decided to take a month. Uh, we grew up in Israel. We decided to take a month and hike in Israel. And we hiked from the north to the south for a month. And every day we invited people to join us. Some people we knew, some people we didn't know. And that decision to take a month off and simply hike and spend time with a friend was one of the best <laughs> decisions I've made. It sounds like it. it sounds pretty memorable. Yeah. And in the spirit of choice architecture, you talk about how we can change our environment to make different decisions. What have you done to change your choice architecture? I do lots of things, but I do have a standing desk, for example. And every night when I leave the office, I put it in the up position. Ah, smart. And what that guarantees is when I come in the morning, I start by standing, right? <laughs> if I, you know, it's electrical. It's not that difficult to do, but, right. <laughs> but I found that even if I come in the morning and it's in the down position, I don't put it up. So that's <laughs> one example. Another thing I've done is I have created an accountability rule for myself. I have a cousin who I love dearly. Her name is Yael. She lives in New York. And we made an exercise pact. Hmm. Very hard to exercise. I travel a lot. It's not too complex. But for example, you can have one dessert only on the weekend. Hmm. And we have to exercise three times a week. And if we don't do it on a weekly basis, we have to report and then we get punished by the other person. <laughs> and that system of accountability really helped me gain much better control over my health both eating and exercise. Plus, I get to talk to my lovely cousin. One last question. In your spare time, you're a chef. You're actually working on a book about cooking. What's your favorite dish to make? So first, this book is like my Moby Dick. One day I'll write it. So what is my favorite dish? I think that my favorite thing to do is actually to make homemade 
pasta. Challenging. I think there's like a dramatic difference in the quality. And there's also something incredibly, you know, I don't do it when I am just by myself, but when I invite people, it has the extra sense of taking care of people that I like as well. Well, that sounds really compelling. Dan, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for sharing your insights, your research, a little bit about your own choices. It's been an absolute pleasure having you. It was lovely, and I'm looking forward to our next meeting. BlackRock has partnered with Dan's Common Sense Lab in our Emergency Savings Initiative. We're enrolling and encouraging thousands of Americans to save. To learn more about the Emergency Savings Initiative or get involved, visit savingsproject.org. This material is for informational purposes and is prepared by BlackRock, is not intended to be relied upon as a forecast, research, or investment advice, and is not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any securities or adopt any investment strategy. The opinions expressed are as of the date of publication and are subject to change. The information and opinions contained in this material are derived from proprietary and non-proprietary sources deemed by BlackRock to be reliable and are not guaranteed as to accuracy or completeness. This material may contain forward-looking information that is not purely historical in nature. There is no guarantee that any forecast made will come to pass. Reliance upon information in this material is at the sole discretion of the listener. Past performance is not indicative of current or future results. This information provided is neither tax nor legal advice, and investors should consult with their own advisors before making investment decisions. Investment involves risk, including possible loss of principal. This material is not an offer to sell or an invitation to apply for any particular product or service. In the U.S., this material is intended for public distribution. In Singapore, this is issued by BlackRock Singapore Limited, co-registration number 2000-10143N. In Hong Kong, this material is issued by BlackRock Asset Management, North Asia Limited, and has not been reviewed by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong. In Australia, issued by BlackRock Investment Management Australia, Limited, ABN 130006165975AFSL230523, BIMAL. The material provides general information only and does not take into account your individual objectives, financial situation, needs, or circumstances. In Latin America, this material is for educational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice nor an offer or solicitation to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any shares of any fund. No securities regulators in Latin America have confirmed the accuracy of any information contained herein. The provision of investment management and investment advisory services is a regulated activity in Mexico, thus is subject to strict rules. For more information on the investment advisory services offered by BlackRock Mexico, please refer to the Investment Services Guide, available at blackrock.com mx. Copyright 2019, BlackRock Inc. All rights reserved. BlackRock is a registered trademark of BlackRock Inc. All other trademarks are those of their respective owners.